You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. History tells us that Thomas Jefferson was really inspired by the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. But history would also tell us that not everything in his life lined up with the word. And so what he ended up doing is we took a a copy of the New Testament, and particularly the four Gospels, and he kept the portions he liked, and he removed the portions he took like an, you know, like a, you know, 18th century or 19th century version of an exacto knife, and actually literally sliced out the portions that he didn't like, rejecting those portions. And what he did is essentially he formed a Christianity that complemented his own ideas and his own preference, that he felt aligned better with his moment in history. Now I hope, I, I'm, I'm going out on a limb here that no one has ever been brazen enough to take an exacto knife to the Bibles, but you can't really assume anything at this point. But practically speaking, we do this all the time. In fact, St. Augustine once said that if you believe what you like in the Gospels and you reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospel that you believe, but your own self. You're not following Christ, you're following you, and Christ is sort of just there along the way. Now, this isn't just a personal problem. Don't take this personally. This is a church-wide problem as well. In many of the teachings of Western Christianity, there are portions of Scripture that we've either glossed over, we've ignored, or we've even removed entirely because we believe that it's outdated, or it's archaic, or it's you know, not culturally relevant, or it's embarrassing, or even you will hear today because these teachings are repressive. Verses about marriage, gender, sexuality, roles, authority, themes that we see very clearly in passages like we're looking at today in Colossians, this is the kind of stuff that's often discarded. These are the verses that are glossed over. And so if this is your first impression today, if you are feeling a sense of suspicion, you heard those words and you're like, "Mm, how's he going to pull that one off today? Or embarrassed. You're like, gosh, why did I choose today to invite someone? Like, why do I have all my family here for the dedication today? Or fear or uneasiness. We need to acknowledge a few really important things. Number one is that most of the standards that we take for granted today and expect today, things like women's rights, justice for the oppressed, fair wages, racial equality, protection of vulnerable people, child abuse prevention, relationships marked by love and respect, they all 
exist and they're all assumed today in the West because of the direct influence of Christianity. Because of verses like this one here today. The Enlightenment didn't form that. Secular humanism didn't do that. This did not originate with feminists. This did not originate with civil rights activists. This did not originate with conservatives. This came from historic Christian, biblical Christianity. And while, you know, there have been numerous abuses of authority in the church and numerous abuses of authority in so-called Christian homes, we have to acknowledge that there have been really damaging things done typically by men that misconstrue and manipulate using verses like this. What we have to remember is that this remains Jesus's vision for new life. We cannot discard it because of the abuses that we've seen in history. We refuse to regard, disregard and discard the things of Jesus because of the ways that they have been abused. And then thirdly, and I want you to think about this, really consider this with me. The world has yet to offer us a better vision for a healthy, flourishing home than what we see in scriptures. Look around. Has the world offered us a better way? One that's with less brokenness, hurt, and fallout? So I want to make um, some connections here. Stats from the U.S. Department of Education found that being raised in a married couple household with one father, one mother, significantly decreases the likelihood of a child living in poverty. In fact, in some portions of our population, it decreases the likelihood of poverty by 73%. Other research from a family law advocacy group found that children raised in a married couple home are 30% more physically healthy it increases their chances of graduating. It positively impacts their academics, economic future, emotional health, cognitive function, and so on. So I get this question all the time. What is reality doing to fight poverty? And I always want to say, what are you doing to fight poverty? Big shot. <laughs> but I don't, you know. I did. I just tipped my cards there, but I don't. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking if you do ask that, by the way. What, what, is, what is the church doing to fight poverty and homelessness and drug addiction and child abuse and high school dropout and education disparity? Well, one important thing is that we are investing in marriages. See the connection there? We, we are discipling couples even in the earliest stages of the premarital engagement process, upholding God's vision for a healthy, harmonious home that is in alignment with God's word because we believe that that will change the world. The interesting thing here is that after casting a vision of putting on this new transformed life in Jesus, putting on the new humanity, Paul immediately brings it home, literally. Brings it right into the home. Because putting on the new life of Christ does begin in the home. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the real you, not the Sunday best you, the real you resides in parenting and in marriage and in the workplace, in those close, intimate relationships when your guards are down. I remember having a conversation years ago with an individual in our church that was very passionate about debating theology, which I'm, I'm tipping all my cards today. I'm not very interested in just 
Save both of us the time. <laughs> I'd rather celebrate who Jesus is than debate about him. But anyways, and so I remember meeting up with him and because this is what I do, I'm like, hey, how's your family? I, I don't know. I've, it felt appropriate as a pastor. I don't know. But almost immediately, he made it clear, I'm not here to talk about my family. I'm here to talk about theology. Red flags. Alarms. Because to me, what that reveals is an extremely divided life. Where now your theology is potentially dangerous and your home is as, as well. What Colossians is showing us here is that you cannot separate the two. They're not mutually exclusive. You, your relationships in the home and in the workplace are a direct window into your soul. They reveal what you believe to be true about God, grace, hope, heaven, the Bible, and the authority of God. This is where faith is fleshed out. Your willingness to humbly love and sacrificially serve the people that are nearest to you and you have the least to gain from, that will be the living proof of who Jesus really is in your life. And the health of these relationships is going to speak volumes to the world around us. This is part of our mission. Christine Pohl put it this way. The character of our shared life as congregations, communities, and families has the power to draw people to the kingdom, here's the terrifying part, or push them away. How we live together is the most persuasive sermon we'll ever get to preach. If that's true, I'm not the only one preaching this week. And so Paul, you guys still with me? Okay. Paul focuses on three very common relationships. These are not the only relationships, but they are three very common relationships, timeless relationships that the gospel impacts and transforms for us. Marriage, parenting, work. So if you're taking notes, let's begin here with melodic marriages, and I'll explain that in just a moment. Melodic marriages. Now, if we back up in Colossians 3 just a little bit, what we're told is this, verse 14. And above all else, here's your sort of highest aim, put on what? Love, which binds everything together in perfect what? Harmony. So the giving and receiving of self-sacrificial love creates an environment that is so beautiful that it becomes like music to people's ears. So what is the sound of your relationships? Is it melodious or is it discord? Now, as you know, harmony requires different distinct notes that come together to complement one another. They are two notes that sort of mutually align or mutually submit to each other. Two diverse notes that when paired together turn individual sounds into a song. And so Paul begins to describe this harmony of love with marriage. This is where it's fleshed out in a covenant relationship between a woman and a man. And I really want to stress this and intentionally stress this important point for us today so that we can begin to think about cultural issues that I know all of us are thinking about right now to think about those things biblically and theologically. 
or we are going to be dazed and confused. So let's anchor ourselves in the scriptures today. Both the biological differences between male and female and the functional role differences between wives and husbands are extremely important. They're designed by God, and as we see in scriptures, they are not interchangeable. Why? Why? Well, because God said it. Okay, that works, but why did God say it? You ever thought to that layer? God set up these roles and these functions and these biological sexes because it serves a greater purpose that reflects God's goodness and covenant. It's about the story of renewal. If you've ever been to a wedding that I've officiated, I've stared that husband and wife right in the eye and said, this is not about you. Your marriage is not about your marriage. Your marriage is about reflecting something bigger than itself. So N.T. Wright, he takes this concept all the way back to the beginning, and he says this. The binaries in Genesis are so important. Think about this. Heaven and earth, sea and dry land, male and female. It's all about God making complementary pairs which are meant to work together. So if you look at the creation account, for instance, Genesis 1, verse 4, we read this. And God saw the light and that it was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. That's interesting. So in God's creative work, a major part of his creation is actually separating, forming necessary distinction. They don't look the same. Light is not darkness. They don't function the same. They aren't ever to be the same. But guess what? They complement each other. And as a sunset reveals to us, the beauty really shines when they are united together. He goes on to say this. The last scene of the Bible is the new heaven and the new earth, and the symbol for that is the marriage of Christ and his church. And it's not just one or two verses here or there which say this or that. It's an entire narrative which works with this complementarity as a signpost. So here's what marriages are doing. As a signpost or signal of the goodness of the original creation and God's intention for the eventual new heavens and the new earth. I bet you did not think about this week when you were thinking about your marriage and saying, this is a signpost to the new creation. You're just like, we're just trying to make it this week, man. For the sake of God's story being demonstrated and declared clearly, we need to embrace manhood and womanhood, not cultural manhood, good grief. Not cultural womanhood, biblical manhood, biblical womanhood. And the church needs to display marriages that align with God's design for these complementary parts. So Paul says, verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, in the ancient world, in the Roman Empire, there were these things called household codes. They were very common, sort of like propaganda that was sent home. And what they would do is they would be sent into homes and they would instruct them on how they should function, how households should be ordered because they, this was a political thing by the way, because they believed that if a household was in disorder, 
that multiple households would be disorder and civilization would finally fall. So they had political motivation to make sure that houses were functioning well. But Paul's household codes here, though not uncommon per se, were extremely revolutionary, and here's why. Because in the Roman Empire, these household codes would always be addressed to the male head of the household known as the paterfamilias. It wasn't addressing wives or children, it was addressing the man of the home because, number one, he was the only one with legal standing and full rights. Number two, he was the only one in the house that was not considered to be property. And number three, he was the only one considered to be a full person with full moral capacity. So it was all addressed to men. And household codes were always reinforcing, big shocker here, the man's authority. Get your house in order. Get your house in order. Put your woman in check. Put your children in check. Put your slaves in check. And yet, what does Paul do? He addresses wives. And listen, he addresses them first. In fact, in all of these relationships, the people with the less cultural power and lower social status are given the priority. Wives, children, bond servants. What is Paul doing here? He's empowering. That, that's what authority exists for, to empower people, amen? But this revolutionary act is also very subtle. He doesn't totally dismantle social order. He's not like blowing up the family. He doesn't eliminate roles and differences. Instead, what he does is he dignifies them and he gives every single person, particularly those in lower social status, a higher motivation. Essentially, he says, this is not about your spouse. This is not about your parent. This is not about your master. This is about Jesus and submitting to his authority. This is about bringing honor to Jesus in the empire. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting to the Lord. So in all the years of our premarital counseling, countless couples have come through premarital counseling. Big shocker, this has been the one that is the stickiest for most people. They're like, hmm. We're going to have to cancel tonight. We'll pick it up next week. And the reason that it's difficult is because in order to know what the Bible is saying here, you have to start by saying what the Bible is not saying here. So submission is not forced. Let's be clear. Submission is not forced. In fact, the minute, the moment that submission is demanded, it's no longer submission. It's not possible. Submission is not manipulation. Submission is not coercion. Submission is not being silenced. Submission is not being isolated and cut off. Submission is not tolerating abuse. Submission is not following someone into sin. Submission is not following someone into destruction. And actually, interestingly enough, submission is an obedience. If Paul wanted wives to obey their husbands, he would have said, like children, obey your husbands. He doesn't say that. He says, submit to them. So what does submission mean? Submission means to voluntarily cooperate, support, and respect. It's a willingness of the heart. It's what we say with words. It's our actions. What Paul is saying is wives rise to the occasion to support 
and to honor and to respect your husbands in all circumstances, whether in private or in public, whether they are there to hear it or whether they're not there to hear it. Wives, partner with your husband to become the man of God and the leader that he is called to be. There are so many caricatures of men, specifically husbands today, that husbands are dumb, lazy, apathetic, aloof. They're just like this warm body taking up space, some goofy freaking dude in the home. Let him know that you believe better for his life. Partner with him to break that pattern. I knew that I was going to get silence on this one, but not this much silence on this one. And why? Because it's fitting to the Lord. Remember that this isn't just about your husband. This is ultimately not for his sake. Submission to your husband is done as unto the Lord. So this is a wild thought. As you honor him, you are honoring Christ. The inverse is true as well. When you dishonor him, you are dishonoring Christ. So let Jesus' worthiness become your motivation for submission. Here's the deal. He is going to give you tons of reason to not want to honor and respect him. But Jesus will never give you that reason. Jesus will never give you that reason. That's why it remains fitting. And husbands, you're in the hot seat now. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Again, this would have been revolutionary We take for granted that love and marriage go together. That is just like assumed. Love, marriage, people love each other and then they get married. That was not always the case. In fact, that was rarely the case historically. The concept of marriage and a marriage marked by love would have been otherworldly. And specifically, the word for love that Paul uses here, agape love, self-sacrificial love, would have been like, what the heck are you talking about? This is so much more than romantic love. Big deal, you're infatuated with her. Ooh, la, la, oh, anyone can do that. But this means sacrificial, loyal love. And men hearing this statement right here would have been experiencing all sorts of inner commotion. Like, what? What? Wait, I was raised believing that a wife exists to be loyal and sacrificial for me. But I'm hearing the opposite here. I was raised believing that a wife is supposed to do X, Y, and C. X, Y, and Z. That's a woman's place. We think we're progressive humans. We're still talking like that today. And my job, they would have thought, is to put my woman in her place. That's my job. That's what the paterfamilias does, is to make sure everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing. But what is a wife's place? I feel that, I I can sense there's tension right now. What's he gonna say? You need, put me down on the record right here. Here's a wife's place in the home. Paul already actually showed us. A wife's place is to be put first. Can I get an amen from the women? Her joy, Her protection, her health, her spiritual vitality, her flourishing before mine, constantly being elevated. Think about Jesus, the bridegroom, the husband of the church. What does he do for us? He raises us up. 
Love drove Christ down into the depths of the grave, down into the depths of death and self-sacrifice so that we could be lifted up. The gospel changes what it means to put someone in their place. So husbands, you better be putting your wife in their place, but you better know what that means. See, the gospel has to disrupt the narratives that we've inherited. We've all inherited, this is what a family ought to be. We've all got our pictures that were given to us by our family of origin or by just the culture that has shaped us. You were probably raised by the television more than your own family. In fact, if this sort of disruption is not happening, it may be evidence that you've never actually encountered the gospel in the first place. Because the gospel isn't just vague good news about Jesus. The gospel is the good story that rewrites our stories. No matter how, you know, no matter what kind of brokenness was modeled for us, no matter what kind of narrative of dysfunction we inherited. I I love this phrase. I think Pete Scazzaro coined it. He said, Jesus may be in your heart, but your grandfather's still in your bones. Don't think because Jesus is in your heart, you don't have habits that need to be broken that were formed in you before you can even remember. So husbands, by the power of the Holy Spirit, reject the legacy of harshness. Reject the legacy of lashing out verbally. Reject the legacy of physical harm. Let your words be used to speak life and to build up. Let your hands be used to hold and to care and to serve and to pleasure her and to lift her up. Yeah, I said it. Let those hands be used to give life and nothing less. And we all know that abusive dads make for abusive husbands. We know that pattern. We know that harsh homes form harsh husbands, but here's the good news. The power of the gospel to transform us is always gonna be greater. The good story of Christ can conquer the broken story that you've inherited. The way of newness that has come into you through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit is gonna be greater than the old ways and the broken ways that are formed deep into you. Lean into the Holy Spirit to break that curse and to start a new story through Jesus. Secondly, parenting that promotes. Parenting that promotes. Look with me in verses 20 through 21. Children, I realize at this point that most of our kids are in kids ministry, so you're just gonna have to go tell them about this. And they're gonna love hearing this, by the way. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Again, the fact that Paul is addressing children here is so revolutionary. It is empowering. It's giving kids dignity. Yes, kids, I understand that the role of being a child is very difficult. I was a kid once. I remember those moments where you're like thinking about your parents like, they don't know what they're talking about. My way is so much better. What on earth are they doing? But this is how you can contribute to shaping a home that makes much of Jesus. You are a part of this mission just as much as your parents are. That's what God wants to to give you the strength to do today. 
Now, I'm, I'm sure that you're going to go on to do some pretty amazing things with your life later in life. But the calling on, on your life from God can start right now. The testimony of your young life, you living differently than your friends that are wilding out, can be used by God to draw people to himself. Jesus Christ could use the testimony of your life in the home, now as a kid, to be what he uses to bring people into his kingdom. What a calling. And then Paul addresses fathers. And while his instruction could easily be applied to mothers and fathers, I think it's really intentional that Paul addresses fathers here specifically, and here's why. Because in the Jewish literature of the time, specifically the writings of Sirach, we can find it in the sort of extra-biblical apocryphal writings, in those specific Jewish writings, the opposite message was being made clear. Parents and fathers specifically were being commanded in certain ways, and children were commanded to do this. Children, don't provoke your father. Children, don't embarrass him, don't upset him, don't make him impatient. So here was the big idea, that it's the child's responsibility to manage their father's emotions. That the burden was on their behavior, doing the right thing, so that he would keep his cool, so that he wouldn't be provoked. Does this sound familiar? This is often finding its way in our parenting style as well. I am so mad at you. What's the appeal? My emotions. I'm so disappointed in you. You are stressing me out right now. Gosh, you're giving me a, a headache. What is it? It's an appeal to my own selfish emotions. I am asking my child to do the heavy work of managing my emotions. And so Paul flips the scripts here. And he says, no, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. It's not your child's responsibility to avoid provoking you. Guess what? That's what children do. It's your responsibility to avoid provoking them. What are the ways that we provoke our children? Nagging them, belittling them, embarrassing them, condemning them. Here's a hard one. Identifying them with their sins. It's one thing to say, hey, let's like learn from this. You did this wrong and we need to correct this. That's good, healthy discipline. It's another to say, you are this. You are that. You are a liar. You are a theft. I had to sit down with my kids and get real humble and real honest and repent before them recently of just the ways that I've slowly and subtly begun to define them by their sin. Thank goodness our Heavenly Father doesn't do that with us. Our influence as parents, particularly the influence of fathers, exists to build up. You ever thought about the phrase raising children? What does that mean? It's our job to promote them. So whether it is through discipline, I hope that you are disciplining your kids. Or whether it's through teaching them lessons, whether it's through like a tense conversation or it's just lighthearted banter, whether you're having fun or you're working hard, let everything that we do as parents and particularly as fathers be done to build up and not to tear down. And the sad truth is we have so much power to tear down. I think a lot of us in our adult years are living trying to undo even a single statement that was spoken over us. Thousands and thousands of dollars in therapy Countless broken relationships trying to undo a word that was spoken over us. 
And he says, lest they become discouraged so that our kids don't lose heart. And this is a firm warning. What he's essentially saying is you can cause your kids to cross a threshold where they lose the motivation to do the right thing entirely. Lastly, worship in the workplace. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, I know this is going to be a very difficult passage right here to process and apply, especially with the limited time that we have left. Especially with our, our history as a nation, one of chattel slavery that existed in the early centuries of our church, or our church, thank God, no, uh, in our country, and that was eventually abolished. And so the question is this, I'm sure that you're asking this today. Slavery is a horrible part of our history. Why would we seek to, to like uphold it and reinforce it? Some things to note. First, that the forced violent slavery of our nation's past is not the same kind that we are reading about here in Colossae at the time. Uh, the transatlantic Slave trade was based on kidnapping and forced labor, which both the Old Testament, Exodus 20, and the New Testament, 1 Timothy 1, condemn. So hear that clearly. The Bible condemns slavery. In the Roman Empire around the first century, it's estimated that 30% of citizens at that time were bond servants. And so if a person was economically poor, if they had accrued some sort of debt that they couldn't pay, there was not government assistance. There was no EBT, no welfare, no WIC, no filing bankruptcy, no GoFundMe, nothing like that. The only option someone had was to choose to enter into servanthood. And it was not based on race. It was actually based on economic status and desperate need. And a theologian named Mirslav Wolf he points out the way that Paul engages bond servants and masters here and in the, their relationship in the New Testament. And what Paul is doing, he says, is planting a seed that begins here to transform things entirely, subtly, and over time. So notice, he does not dismantle the system entirely. He's not like, oh, it's all bad, stop doing that. Just like if Paul wrote to us, in the 21st century, he probably wouldn't dismantle capitalism, although thousands from, of years from now, they're gonna probably be like, that was so jacked up. That was so jacked up, I can't believe they reinforced that. He says, instead, that Paul's planting something in the system that would weaken it over time. He's infusing within it honor, dignity, justice, fairness, and equality. Through Paul's instructions, Slavery has been abolished even if its outer institutional shell remains. And so while this is not apples to apples, I need you to hear me saying that. This is not apples to apples. What he's talking about does not perfectly apply to our context today. There are things that we can apply to our work situation as employees and employers. 
And so employees, respect and listen to your boss. And not just when they are looking at you. We all know that person in the workplace that is like the hardest worker until the boss turns around. Not just when you're trying to get a promotion, not just because you want to get a raise, not just because your annual review is coming, but do your job well with sincerity, excellence, and wholehearted effort because God is always watching. And this is not ultimately for the sake of your boss. This is unto God. You are serving Christ, who is worthy of our best always. And so when you are tempted to think, I'm not appreciated enough, or how about this, I'm not paid enough for this crap. I'm not paid enough for this. What we need to remember is that this is not an option. The workplace is always a place of worship. The workplace is always the place where we are to express our gratitude to God and to serve him in excellence. And likewise, employers, bosses, managers, business owners, he says, be just, be fair. Put yourself in their shoes. Ask yourself this question, could I work for me? Would I resent me? Could I live on what I'm paying them? Create an environment of fairness and dignity and respect for your employers where the org chart does not enforce your superiority, but so the org, org chart reinforces your support. Why? He says, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now this could mean two things, and maybe it means both things. It, one meaning could be that you both have to answer to the same Jesus. Like Paul is striking fear in people. Like you can't abuse people and think you're gonna get away with it. If you mess with God's people, you're messing with God. He's not gonna let it slide. That's one meaning. But it also could be a worshipful reminder. Paul also may be saying, remember your master. Think about this, remember Jesus who according to Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or demanded, but he empties himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Submission, obedience, servanthood, think about this. The Lord is not asking you to do anything that he was unwilling to do himself. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he kneels and prays before the Father, he says, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass before me, let it, well, let it be, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Hebrews 5 says that through suffering, Jesus learned obedience. Jesus was the obedient son. He was obedient to the word completely. He was obedient to the call of the father. Jesus himself said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So a wife's call to submit, a husband's call to love, a, a child's call to obey, a father's call to promote, a bondservant's call to work heartily, a master's call to be fair and just. The motivation for any and every role that we will ever fulfill in our lives 
comes directly from Jesus. No matter where we find ourselves today, the same statement is true. Remember your master. Look to Jesus, the one that goes before you, the one that is empowering you, the one that will allow you to honor him in any and every place that you find yourself. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, it's our prayer.